If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Exodus chapter 20? What an amazing morning. Commissioning an elder, um, seeing an opportunity coming our way to continue to live out the vision that God has given us as a church. Um, we'll talk about it more tonight, but let me just say, we're not seeking these out. They are freakishly coming to us, and we're like, Lord, we feel like we have full hands, but find us faithful. What does that look like? So would love for you, like Ernie said, to come back tonight and explore that with us. We sincerely want to hear from you and um, to see you lean into this and pray with us about these things. We started a series last week on the Ten Commandments. And so uh, looking back at last week, we said two things about the Ten Commandments. Um, they're a command for the New Testament church. And we also said that they, can, they can't save us. Only Jesus can save us. We said they stand not as a burden to crush us, but as a gift to guide us. And the question that arises, and we talked about last week a little bit, is how is it that this law that we fail to keep perfectly doesn't crush us, but is a gift? And the answer has been and remains to be, it's because Jesus saves. And when Jesus saves us, he takes our crooked hearts, our bent hearts, our hardened hearts, and gives us a new heart, softens our heart, his spirit lives in, in us, and instead of rebellion, our desire becomes obedience. In light of Christ's saving work in our lives, we want to, our motivation becomes desiring to live in grateful response to all that he's done by following his commands. This morning, we're talking about worship as we look in at the second commandment. Right out of the gates, just so we include everybody here, worship isn't just for the religious, for the spiritual. It's something that humans do. Humans worship. Humans worship. Last week, we talked about the fact that our hearts are idol factories. Every one of us will worship. The question is, who or what will that be? Because all of us will, in some way, shape, or form, worship something or someone. So the question isn't, do you worship, as we dive in this morning, but who or what do you worship? And we're adding a layer to it this morning. How do you worship that person or thing? So let me read for us the second commandment found in verses 4 through 6 of Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. At first glance, if you were listening closely, there might have been a couple flags that went up, one after the other. When it starts to describe God as being jealous, we go, wait, what? 
And then we continue, and very quickly it starts to talk about the sins of a father being handed down to the third and the fourth generation, and we say, what? So those are two live questions in the text that probably are, if you think about them long enough, pretty troubling at first glance. And so we're going to spend some time looking at those as we go. Um, This, along with the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath, are kind of the, the longest passages within the Ten Commandments. They're elaborated on. Um, The Sabbath especially. So I handed that off to Pastor Jason. He'll do that in a couple weeks. This looks complicated. Jason, you're on. Okay, that's it. Um, And so that command and this command are are elaborated on, and so um, we need to spend some time there. It's a little bit complicated, this second commandment. So we're going to take it in four parts, okay? We're going to break it down. The first part, let's call it the rule, the command itself. What is it? Second, the reason. Third, the warning. And fourth, the promise. Let's look at the rule. Here's what it is. Don't make idols, you guys. Okay, I added the you guys. Don't you guys. All right, that's my parent voice. That's my talking to my son's voice. Don't make idols. That's the rule. That's what's being said If we were to summarize it all, that's what's being said in the second commandment. So let's set a little context here. The book of Exodus is really two parts, the first half and the second half. The first half has everything to do with the Exodus itself, literally the departure from slavery in Egypt to being freed by God to follow Him. They leave the land. They are freed. It's amazing. Look at what God has done. He's delivered His people. The second half of the book of Exodus is in light of His deliverance. How should we live? How do we honor this God who saves? And that's the back half. Included in that back half of the book of Exodus are the Ten Commandments, a summary of the law. Now, they are leaving Egypt, a place where idols existed, where false gods were worshipped. They've just left there. They've been there for 400 years, and they're entering a land where Canaanites live. They're going to overtake this land, and these Canaanites worship false gods. They bow down to idols. So both where they've been and where they're going, idolatry surrounds them. They've had 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and they're praising God for His deliverance. So what do they want to do? Well, they want to worship God for his deliverance, but they were so influenced by Egyptian culture and spirituality that they were susceptible to worship the right God in the wrong way, because everywhere they looked, they were seeing examples of what not to do. And when we live in that kind of a context, wouldn't you know, we often look a lot like it. So God, in his mercy, is elaborating on what it means to worship God rightly. Where the first commandment has to do with worshiping the right God, you shall have no other gods. The second commandment has to do with worshiping the right God in the right way. Don't make carved images and don't bow down to them. How we worship, God is showing us in the second commandment, matters nearly as much to God as whom we worship. We can't worship Him any way we like. That's our bent. That's what we like to do. We can't worship Him any way we like, but only the way that He has commanded. 
The second commandment says that we avoid all idolatry and do not worship God improperly. Here's my summary of the rule. Don't make idols. Don't worship false gods and don't worship God falsely. Don't worship false gods and don't worship God falsely. But why? Okay, let's get to the reason. Why is God giving us this command? The reason is God forbids idolatry because of his jealous love. When I say, you know, to my friend, oh, you know, don't worry, he's just jealous. What does that mean? It means he's, it's envy usually. We use it in a, there's a negative connotation to jealousy. We usually use it like in a way that we would use envy, wanting something that's not yours, Right? We'll get to coveting later in the commandments, but it's essentially that, desiring to get something that isn't yours, this envy, this jealousy of what others have that you don't, even though it's not rightfully yours. But while that's how we use the word jealousy typically, it doesn't negate the fact that sometimes something really does belong to you. And if there are things that really belong to you, that are not, that are being taken away, is there then not reason to be protective of it, to be jealous for it? Let me give you an example. By the way, when I talk jealousy here, the definition we can use is fiercely protective and demanding exclusivity. God is jealous. He's fiercely protective and He's demanding exclusivity. Here's the example I want to give you. A loving husband towards his wife. What husband in his right mind, emphasis on husband in his right mind, would be cool with his wife in the arms of another man? No man in his right mind. They would be jealous and rightfully so, hey? So there would be this righteous jealousy. It's right to be jealous. His wife should not be in the arms of another man. That's right and good. And then there's all these sinful other thoughts probably in the husband's mind as well that are not so righteous. Rage. Uh, you know, okay. But you, you track with me, right? So jealousy can be right. A husband and a wife should, only, should be committed to each other and no others. And when one isn't, there is a righteous jealousy. That's not right. It's not right what you're doing. What kind of husband would he be if he didn't care whether or not his wife was faithful to him? This in the Old Testament numerous times is a picture of God and his chosen people. The book of Hosea is a literal, is literal imagery, live action imagery of, of what it looks like. God says to the prophet Hosea, go marry this prostitute. You're going to marry her. She's going to be adulterous. She's going to cheat on you. She's going to leave you. And he does, and all of that happens. And he says, it's simply a picture of you, Israel. I'm the faithful husband, and you cheat on me. You play the whore, literally. But I have this faithful, zealous fierce love for you. 
One commentator said, Godly jealousy is not the insecure, insane, and possessive human jealousy that we often interpret this word to mean. Rather, it is an intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love, like a mother's jealous protection of her children. Oh, is that good. Like a father's jealous guarding of his home. Oh, that is right. In this way, God is jealous because he loves us too much not to be. Have no other gods. Do not make carved images and bow down to them, for I am a jealous God. It's not how you were made. It's not how it's supposed to be. Do not, for I am a jealous God. And not only does he love us, but he invites our love in return. And that involves worshiping him in a way that's worthy of his glory and grace. It's the back half of the book of Exodus. Look at all that he's done. Oh, now that we might follow him. How do we do that? So, why does our rightly jealous God instruct us not to make visible representations of him? Like, I, I, we get that conceptually. He's a jealous God. We shouldn't worship others. But why not carved images and bowing down? What, what's going on? Well, here are a number of ways that portraying God in an image or an object betrays the very nature of who God is. Here's the first. Idols are finite. God's not. A finite object can't be worshipped as an infinite God, right? So when we try to fashion God in an object to capture Him, we make Him into an object that is finite and therefore do not do justice to the fact that He's an infinite God. The idol is finite. In fact, every created thing is finite. God alone is infinite. The attributes of God revealed in Scripture point to the perfection of our infinite God. Omnipresent, all-present. Omnipotent, all-powerful. Omniscient, all-knowing. Like the God of the Bible doesn't just know some stuff. He knows all things. The fact that the idol is a thing, the fact that the idol is an object, betrays the infinite nature of God. So that's the first. Here's the second. Idols are fabricated. God is not. We're makers of things by nature, objects, art, or otherwise. My son Walker, give him a bin full of Legos. He's going to build towers, buildings, roads, vehicles. Give my son Boston pillows and blankets, and he's going to build a fort give my wife a credit card and she's going to make things appear. (laughs) My my wife was in the first service and after after I preached, I went and and sat with her and she leaned over and was like, that was cheap. (laughs) She's like, that was low-hanging fruit. Like, that that was fruit on the ground. And I'm like, fair enough, I'm going to do it again in the second, okay? Here we go. It's not true, that was, that was just slow. To make things is great, right? To make things is great. So what do we do with the second commandment? Do not make images of things in the heavens, things on the earth, things in the sea. Like, so can I not draw a picture of a dolphin? Like, what does that mean? So we have to differentiate here because making things is wonderful. Some of you can build houses. God bless you. 
Some of you can build great furniture. I would not sit on anything that I made, right? Some of you make great art through painting or photography or music or poetry. We're makers of things, and that's wonderful. We image God a little bit there. He's the great creator, and he's made us as creating beings. That's wonderful. But what do we do with the second commandment then? To make things is great, but when that thing becomes the object of our worship, it's an idol. Hear it? To make things is great, but to make the things that we make with our hands, when they become the objects of our worship, now they're idols. God steers us away from making icons, from statues and paintings of God because He's not made. He's the maker. My my friend illustrated it this way. He talked about, you know, a lot of people kind of treat Jesus like a pillow. And they kind of treat Jesus like an old pillow, right? The one that's kind of got some lumps in it and stuff. And what do we do? You put your head on it and you're like, ooh, that's not comfortable. And you pound out the lump. Ah, that's better. And you kind of turn your head, and it's like the pillow isn't quite just kind of morphing to your head enough. It's like, that doesn't fit me. So you kind of pound it down, and right? Shake it out. Ah, that's better. We, we do that, but Jesus can't be fabricated like that. We can't make him into fitting us. That's not how God works. And the minute you do that with an idol, ah, it fits me. Ah, it's to my liking. It fits my head, and I don't have any aches or pains now. God doesn't work that way. In fact, a God of our own imagination will be just that, an imaginary God. Third, idols are controlled by humans. God is not. We want to worship God as we want, not as He wants. We want to worship God as we see fit, not as He sees fit. We want to make God serve us rather than bowing our knee to serve Him. We're tempted to do that all the time. The one who creates the thing is the one who is in control. And that's why God is saying, don't make idols. Because once we make the thing, we think, ah, now I am in control of it. You fashion an idol. You set it on the table. You think, ah, it actually looks better if it's just over here. We move the idol. We knock the idol down. We cover it up. We destroy the idol. When you try and create something, make something, now you are the one who's in control. Thomas Jefferson was an American president, and one night in the White House, in the Oval Office, after all of his work for the day was done, for whatever reason, he took two Bibles and he began to cut out the verses he really liked, the verses that made sense to him. In his mind, he could clearly distinguish between the worthy parts of the Bible and the worthless He could distinguish them, he was certain. He later wrote in a letter to John Adams, finding the good verses in the Bible was like finding diamonds in a dunghill. In this book, the Thomas Jefferson Bible, he kept the words of Jesus and some of his deeds, but left out the miracles and any suggestion that Jesus is God. The virgin birth is gone. So was Jesus walking on water, multiplying the loaves and fishes, and raising Lazarus from the dead. Jefferson's version ends with Jesus' burial on Good Friday. There's no resurrection. There's no Easter Sunday. Here's the thing about Thomas Jefferson's Bible. He could control it. Not so with God's Bible. 
fourth or fifth or wherever we are. Nineteenth. Idols are needy. God is not. I think it was over a decade ago now, I went on a short-term mission trip to China, and we went to a Buddhist temple there, and I was struck. I had never seen anything like it. Brass or, or bronze, kind of statues of, of Buddha and other gods made of wood, and these idols were all over this Buddhist temple. And in front of a lot of the bigger ones especially were, was like, would be like a bowl of orange, oranges in front of the idol, in front of the Buddha statue. And I was so struck by it. Oh my goodness, these people need to come and bring their God a snack. And eventually, because the oranges wouldn't be eaten, they'd start to rot and they'd quickly get rid of them and bring in fresh fruit. They had to dust their God. They had to protect it from vandalism. Contrast that with the God of the Bible, when he says in Psalm 50, verse 10, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Idols are needy. God is not. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah is with these, there's these priests who worship Baal, and Elijah is in a bit of a tough spot, and so he tells them, hey, listen, why don't you make a sacrifice and put it on your altar and call down Baal to consume it with fire? And they go, sure, okay, we'll do that. And they do that. They, they put the sacrifice on their altar and they start to pray. They start to cry out. They start to walk around. They even, it says in 1 Kings 18, they start to cut themselves and bleed. And, and they're just they're doing whatever they think they can to have their God show up. And Elijah starts to mock them. <laughs> do you know the story? If you don't know the story, he starts to literally say, he says this, uh, maybe your God's gone to the bathroom. That's why he's not here. Maybe he's sleeping and you need to wake him up. Maybe he's on a long journey. He's occupied. He can't be reached right now. And then he makes a, he rebuilds the altar that they have smashed and that he puts his sacrifice on it and prays to God and God consumes it with fire. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul goes to these great thinkers in, of the day, these philosophers in Athens, and he tells them in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. And everything. Jesus said to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, these, this vision that the apostle John had of Jesus speaking to these real seven churches. Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. That's what the people in the church, what their posture was. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And it's at this point that Jesus invites them into repentance where he can clothe them and he can give them sight because at that time they were simply lukewarm. 
Idols are needy, but we get it backwards. We are needy. We are. It's one of the great tricks of idolatry, of false gods. Lastly, idols are seen. God is not. Normatively. Normatively, there it is. I add that word because there are some instances, not when Jesus came in the flesh, but other instances where, where individuals in the Scripture seem to have these encounters with the Lord in some way, shape, or form. And it's quite striking to see what happens. When Abraham meets the Lord, he bows to the ground, face to the ground. When Moses encountered God in the burning bush, he hid his face, it says in Exodus 3, for he was afraid to look at God. Isaiah 6 tells us that Isaiah saw the Lord and his response is to cry out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. When he's saying woe of himself, he's talking about distress and wretchedness. He's before a holy God and he's like, woe. He's devastated by his sin. Daniel has a vision, Daniel chapter 10, and in it he sees the Lord. And his response is, this is literally what it says, Pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. No strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. These real individuals saw in one way, shape, or form God, who is spirit. They saw him in some way, and they were devastated, fell to the ground, lost control of their bodies, and were freaking out. Woe is me. And then we sing songs in church like, I want to see you. I want to see you. It's like, what? Do you? Do you want to be crushed right now? Do you want to fall down devastated? Like, oh, I had no idea how glorious God is. But we prefer the visual, you and me. We are the most visual culture that has ever been. Did you know back in the day, women didn't even really care that much about men's looks? They were like, it's what's... It's his character. But we, we have become such a visual culture that now women themselves are like, oh, he's hot. Like women's brains are being rewired from historically what really mattered to the visuals too. We're that visual. That's why when we talk about porn in the church, which is from time to time, we don't say, guys, I'm talking to the men here. We talk to the church here because we are a visual culture and we prefer it. But what we need to recognize, I was going to say what we need to see, <laughs> we, is that God doesn't say, hey, look at me. He says, listen to me. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Jesus says in John 20, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. When Jesus speaks to the church in Revelation, he concludes it, this way to three of the seven churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, don't get caught up in visions of me. Get caught up in how I share who I am, and that is through the Word, the Bible. To summarize this section here, let me quote Philip Ryken commentator, pastor, 
theologian said, an idol makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, and the spiritual God material. In short, it makes him the exact opposite of what he actually is. Thus, the whole idea of idolatry rests on the absurdity of human beings trying to make a true image of God. An idol is not the truth. It's a lie. It is a God who cannot see, cannot know, cannot act, cannot love, cannot save. To worship the right God the wrong way is to testify ultimately to the wrong God. See, this isn't just some sort of physical, though, Because you're like, okay, you've said all this. I haven't crafted an idol. I don't have a shrine in a room in my house. How does this apply? When all of the commands, when they are given, it's not just a physical command. Do not murder. It's also a spiritual command, an inward command that's saying, don't hate people. It's also telling us to do the opposite. Don't just not hate people, love people. So when God says, don't make an idol, he's saying, don't worship me falsely, worship me rightly. I'm not just talking about physical stuff if you don't have some wooden or metal painted idol. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about your spirit. I'm talking about the internal as well as the external. See, we are worshipers, and we can turn anything into an idol. We're that good. Some of the idols, we talked about them a little bit last week. Money is an idol. Family is an idol, like it begins and ends with family. Our security is such an idol, right? Safe neighborhood, bank account is in a healthy place. I've got my whole life kind of fenced, guarded, all is well. Here's a, this is more, a little more complicated. Culturally speaking, it's not just physical idols, it's ideologies. These concepts that we actually believe can save us. I'm not being sarcastic when I say many people thought that Silicon Valley was going to create not just great technology, but a utopian future. Look at what they're capable of. Look at the world they're creating. Look at the connectivity. They've actually thought it could save them. Hollywood. Hollywood, right? These these cultural elites gathering together and saying, what are the stories we're going to tell? Because we know we can shape culture. And they, they actually believe if we tell the right stories, we'll get people to believe the right things, and then there will be utopia. And yet, what are we? We're seeing the cracks with Facebook, Silicon Valley. We're seeing the cracks with Hollywood. Me too, Harvey Weinstein. Seeing the cracks in politics, I can remember watching it on the television, Barack Obama standing on that stage in front of, I don't know, thousands, hundreds, I don't forget how many people, right? Um, And I don't want to cushion the numbers as some people do, right? I just want to talk about the fact that like that was a key moment. And like I think like half of America thought utopia has come. It's arriving. It's here. And then two terms later, it's like, wait, it's not. And then Donald Trump comes. Let's move on, right? (laughs) But but listen, right? There was this very real sense. Politics can save us. Barack Obama and what's coming. This is going to save us. It's like, no, it, it 
didn't. Donald Trump, the right, look at the, now let's not go to the left, let's go to the right and let's go, because waiting for us here, if our ideologies, if what we're saying could just be fleshed out, utopia, no, look at it now, look, look at both. I love in the city of God, written by Augustine, he's talking about the fact that like Rome is falling. And people are freaking out. But what Augustine was saying in the book, The City of God, essentially, at least in the first part, what he was talking about was this. Though the city of man fall, the city of God never will. And yet people are freaking out. Why? Because they thought these ideologies could save them, but we're just seeing more cracks. None of our idols can deliver. None of them can save. Only God can. Charles Spurgeon said this centuries ago, and it's more poignant than ever, I think, when he says, man fashions for himself a God after his own liking. That's idolatry right there. Out of what he calls his own consciousness or his cultured thought, a deity to his taste who will not be too severe with his iniquities or deal out strict justice to the impenitent. He rejects God as he is and elaborates other gods such as he thinks the divine ought to be. This is what we do. This is the great quarrel of the present day between the philosopher and the Christian. The philosopher says, yes, a god if you will. But he must be of such a character as I now dogmatically set before you. But the Christian replies, Our business is not to invent a God, but to obey the one Lord who is revealed in the Scriptures of truth. That's what we're called to in the second commandment. Not a God of our making, not a God of our taste, God as he is, worshipped rightly. Let's get to the warning. The warning is this. I'll I'll review here. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. This is a difficult text. What does it mean that God is visiting the iniquity of these fathers? It's talking about their crooked, depraved, offensive, sinful crime. And in this context, it suggests that idolatry is a kind of corruption, a turning away from God. And so God is stating a judgment here in this text that is tough to read. And the judgment of God spoken here is on those who hate God. But... What does it mean that he punishes their iniquities to the third and the fourth generation of this sinful man's children? Like, what does that mean? I mean, in one sense, it's understandable. Okay, give me this. One generation sets the spiritual tone for the next, right? Models it. I have come to discover that the sins of my father are mine. My dad has a lot of great qualities, and I'm so thankful that some of those I have inherited. But as I grow older, as I age, like a fine wine, if you will, that's quickly turning, I will add. All right. I've come to see 
the stuff that I used to look at my dad at and say, I'll never do that. I am intuitively doing. And I'm going, ah, I'm becoming my dad. Why? Well, it's in me. I've inherited those things. So in that sense, sure. But this text says more than that. It says that God punishes children for the sins of their fathers. So dad's not just passing down a bad example, but the guilt of his sin upon his children, his children's children, and his children's children's children? I think I got that right. Yet God, I'm going to say as a caveat, yet God never condemns the innocent, only the guilty. I think here's where we get texts like this wrong. We say, that's unfair, that's unjust. A dad does something, and then like his kids and his grandkids and his great-grandkids suffer for that. He's guilty, they're innocent, they're punished, and that's where we get it wrong. Who said they're innocent? Look at the text. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. The kids grandkids and the great-grandkids hate God, hate Him. Therefore, God is just and judges fairly as people deserve. Remember, there's a promise coming, so hold on. One author in his book on idolatry defined it as an attack on God's exclusive rights to our love, trust, and obedience. And what this is saying is that there are generations who hate that, who are opposed to God, who reject Him, who have this attack on God. That's what's being talked about here. And there is, really practically, a serious warning to fathers in this commandment. Mothers as well for some reason, you seem to get that a bit more. Fathers, when a man refuses to love Jesus preeminently and passionately and to worship God rightly, the consequences of his sin can last for generations. No, it's not some quiet sin. This will not hurt anybody. This is just me. No, your kids will suffer. Your grandkids will suffer. Your great-grandkids will suffer for your privatized sin that you think hurts nobody, not according to God. It hurts a great deal, and it hurts for generations. The man who treasures idols in his heart will corrupt more than his own heart. But a man who makes Jesus his treasure, who worships the right God in the right way with everything he's got will bring enormous blessing to his family and not just in his children, but his children's children, his children's children. So who or what is your treasure, man? What is the great emphasis of your life? What kind of worship are you giving Jesus? What kind of legacy are you leaving? See, it's bravely and unwaveringly following Jesus even when it costs you dearly. That's what I'm trying to paint a picture of. It's lovingly and compellingly modeling Jesus to those around you, especially your first ministry, which is your family. Hear me, men. This is hard. I find this really hard. 
My family is my primary ministry, and it's the ministry I find most difficult, I find most vulnerable, and I feel like I am most average at being generous. But my ministry as a pastor will never be a success if I pastored a growing church, but my family never did. Last weekend, we had an act like men retreat or or breakfast, condensed retreat. And we didn't like eat bacon and grunt and like fight each other. We opened our Bibles and said, what does a godly man look like? And as I was sharing on 1 Corinthians 16, I told the story about the movie Saving Private Ryan. And I asked the guys, what's Saving Private Ryan about? And a few of the guys piped up. Uh, It's about saving Private Ryan, (laughs) but it's not. It's about saving his mom. See, this mother sent a bunch of her sons to war, and then all of them died, except one was still alive. And when they discovered this, they put a band of soldiers together to go to the front lines and bring the last living son of this heartbroken woman back so she would not be utterly crushed. And to a man, this little band of soldiers said, that's worthy of my time, that's worthy of my commitment, that's worthy of my fighting, that's worthy of my life. I'll fight for that. I will go into enemy territory to bring back this young man so his mother can face another day. Man, I'm not saying it will be easy and that it won't be costly, but what I am saying is that it's a battle worth fighting for your family for generations. The promise. God's promise of mercy is more powerful than his warning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that it's not just verse 5, it's also verse 6. Verse 5 says this, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And then on to verse 6, the promise. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God's promise is more powerful than the warning because its blessing lasts not just for three or four generations, but for a thousand. When it says... Steadfast love to thousands is not just talking about thousands of people, it's talking about thousands of generations, or more literally, a thousand generations, which is to be taken as a promise that will last forever. This was the case with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, when God said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. Remember, I said this last week, the Ten Commandments begin with the gospel, not the law. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of slavery. Now have no other gods. It starts with promise. It starts with gospel. All we have to do, what's responsible for us, is to respond to the God who loves us by relying in Jesus Christ for salvation. Not relying on idols, not worshiping idols, but following the commands of our loving God in grateful response for his mercy and his grace. Like Abraham and his family, God calls a family to leave its idols behind and follow him. Would you do that? 
And when God does that in you, for you, in your family's life, he establishes a lasting generation from one generation to the next. No, you are not doomed. You can break the curse and turn to Jesus, bring a new legacy, a new story to your broken family. Let's land the plane. We aren't allowed to make God's image because we're to be God's image. God can't be represented in a statue or a painting because he's intended his likeness to appear in us. The image of God in the pinnacle of creation is human beings. And as we know him, adore him, and worship him, it's there his image is bared. Human beings, like I said, were created, to, were created as worshipers. We all worship something or someone. And human beings were created to be reflecting beings and will reflect whatever we are ultimately committed to, the true God or false gods. So the question isn't do you worship, but who do you worship and how do you worship? Do you worship him rightly? Do you reflect God in the ways you were created to reflect his image? Are you being conformed into his image or into the image of an idol? God commanded us not to make an image of him, but what's implied is that God would make an image of himself. You're not to because I will. He didn't want people trying to make an image of himself because his plan was to show himself to his people in his son, Jesus. The fulfillment of the second commandment happened at the birth of Christ. He was born. He entered the fray. He was despised and rejected, but he kept the law perfectly. He died in our place. He rose from the grave, offering us eternal life in him, giving us hope. Then he put a new spirit in us when it would become our joy, our desire to be obedient to him. And as that spirit works in us and as we joyfully keep his commands because the gospel is true and that good, we begin to be this redeemed image in the world, image bearers of God. Light in the darkness, hope where the cracks are coming and light is light shining through all the broken things in this world. As we worship Jesus rightly, not wrongly, he wants us to worship him rightly. As we worship him rightly, we become more Christ-like. We deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow him in love and generosity, integrity, service, and humility, empowered by the Spirit, in joyful gratitude for the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, as I study this text, I realize, yeah, I fashion idols. Oh, would you forgive us of our idolatry, Jesus? May the gospel utterly shatter our man-made idols, those worthless things that we've staked our lives on thinking they'll save. Jesus, you are the focus of our worship, and you invite us to worship you in spirit and in truth, taking on your nature, becoming more Christ-like, and that is how your image is displayed to a watching world. Would you make it so in us? 
Would you make us a repenting men, a repenting church, a repenting people, and a people so taken with the gospel that it becomes our great joy in life to be your worshipers. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.